2 Timothy chapter 4. Once upon a time, let me tell you a true story about a church that had been a thriving congregation. Faithful Christians in this particular church had given sacrificially and generously. Eventually they constructed their own building. You'll see in this picture, though, on the screen here, they, even though they had consecrated this particular building to the Lord and they had worshipped there for many years, that particular congregation had died. As a result, the building was deserted. How does that happen? Sadly, we, we, we see that sort of thing happening all around the world. And if you look around New Zealand, for example, you'll see a lot of church buildings that are no longer church buildings. Their cafes or whatever, something else, a business of some sort. How does that happen? How did a church like that go from a thriving congregation to dead? How did it slide from healthy, from sick, to eventually being totally dead? How does that happen? Well, we'll see that here in 2 Timothy chapter 4, but before we get there, you need to also realize that not all dead churches are empty. In fact, there's a lot of dead churches, some dead churches, I'll say, particularly some, I'm going to show you one here in the United States, that are very full. In fact, they're massive. Dead churches can be filled with lots of people. This one's called Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas, and when I looked up on the Internet... Two largest churches in the United States are both in Houston. This one here, Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas, USA, has an approximate attendance of 43,000 people. They actually bought an NBA uh, center. NBA is a basketball association. They actually bought the Houston Rockets uh, center and turned it into their church building. It's pastored by a well-known false teacher by the name of Joel Osteen. You'll see his books in Christian bookstores. So how, 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 can it, how can that happen? By the way, they didn't start that big. But how, how can churches like that be massive megachurches and be dead, spiritually speaking? How does that happen? Well, Paul tells us here in the second letter to Timothy, and he's, by the way, this letter he wrote maybe just days, weeks, months before his death. We know Paul was assassinated, executed. The emperor of Rome didn't want him around anymore. Paul died. As far as we know, this is Paul's last will and testament. Last chapter, in fact, as far as we know, that Paul ever wrote in Holy Scripture. So in chapter 4 here, 2 Timothy, Paul's looking into the future in a way, and he, he sees a church being destroyed. And he warns us how it happens here. Paul tells us how to destroy a church. So let's read 2 Timothy chapter 4. We'll start reading in verse 1. 2 Timothy 4 verse 1. These are the words of the living God. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, 
But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul gives us four steps in how to destroy a church. So you want to know how to do it? This is how you do it. It's right here in the text. Let me just highlight these for you. And then we'll look at, well, that's not what we want to do. So what does the Bible tell us how we can actually protect a church? So even though this is a pastoral epistle, please take this to heart because this is also written for you. You need to know how to protect a church from our three great enemies, which is Satan, the world, and our own flesh. So how can you destroy a church? Well, it takes only four steps. Four steps we see in the text here, and the first one's in verse 4. Step number one is this, reject the truth. It always starts there with rejecting the truth. And Paul warns Timothy here in verse 4 that these people will turn away from listening to the truth. That's the first step in in destroying a church. You have to turn away from what is true. You say, well, what's truth? Well, look at the old Webster Dictionary. It gives you a great definition of truth. It's, It's what is corresponding to God's reality. God is truth, and he's the one who determines what's truth. And so when people turn away from God's reality, they're they're ultimately rejecting him, and that's what's going on here. They're losing interest in the truth as God has revealed it in the Bibles. And so how do how do you get megachurches? One of the ways it starts is it starts with Bibles that have dust on them. Bibles that sit on the shelf aren't being read. People aren't listening to sermons. They're not reading Christian books. They don't care about the truth. They're growing weary of what God says is true. So once was for someone was a love of truth becomes a dislike and then disgust toward the truth. What was once a hatred of error becomes an interest in the error. Hearts become hardened. Consciences become seared. They reject the truth. That's the first step in destroying a church. Number two is then they reject the truth tellers. You look at verse 3, you'll see what Paul says there. So it goes from rejecting the truth, then they reject the truth tellers, the preachers of God's word. And so as they're turning away from the truth here, they turn against the very ones who are telling the truth, God's ministers. So Paul tells Timothy here in verse 3 that that in this particular day to come, they will not endure sound teaching. Sounds like our age, doesn't it? It's not that people won't know what truth is, but that they won't endure what is true. Just like what they did to Jesus. They had truth incarnate right in front of him, and they re- most of the people rejected him and crucified him. Because they've come to hate the truth, they will now hate the ones who are proclaiming the truth, just like they did with God's prophets in the Old Testament. So the very teachers that once drew them are now repulsing them. So it goes from rejecting the truth then they reject the truth-tellers to number three. Step number three is then they embrace false teachers. So if you don't like the truth-tellers, 
need something else. So let's just replace them with false teachers. So this kind of church, a dead church, is one that's rejected the truth and those who teach the truth. And then they embrace the false teachers because notice what the Bible says here. Having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. So I don't like the, the God's ministers who teach truth, so I'm going to get somebody who's going to just you know tickle my ear. The idea there was, give me, give me something that I like to hear. And so as these people become hardened in their sin, as they're growing in their rebellion to God, they're going to want to be led by people who are going to tell them things that they actually want to hear. They, they want to hear about their felt needs. They don't want to hear the truth. They want to hear that God loves them and has a wonderful plan for their life. They want to hear that all people are going to heaven. That's the sort of stuff they want to hear. They want to hear that God has a wonder, that, that you can have your best life now. Not in the future. You can have it now. And so Paul uses a great word picture there to describe these kind of people. They have itching ears. These are ears that want to be tickled by novelty. They like new, different varieties. And so they, something that's going to be respectable to general society, palatable to the godless world. And so they, they soon find this kind of teacher who's going to justify th- their way of thinking, their hearts, justify turning away from the truth. So they want someone who's going to validate them in the rebellion against God. Step number four is then, ultimately, they embrace false teaching. They embrace false teaching. They, and by embrace, I mean they, they love it. <laughs> They're hugging it. And so once they've rejected the truth, then they reject the truth tellers. Then they find somebody who's just going to tickle their ears. And then notice what verse 4 says. Then ultimately they will wander off into myths. They'll embrace full-out error. They embrace full-out heresy. They reject the Christian creeds. They'll become hardened in their sin. And, and so they, they believe error is, is a good thing. Error's true. They become so deluded and rebellious that they're going to celebrate what God actually hates. And they do it in, in the name of God, some of them, many of them. And so they wander off, as it says. Notice, wander off, just like a sheep does. Sheep wander off. They like to do that sort of thing, get themselves in trouble. And so they they go away from the good shepherd, and eventually they will die. Let me illustrate this by telling you about the very church I started with. By the way, that's a true story, and it could be multiplied over and over again. So let me illustrate by telling you about a dead church, the one that you saw there. This church died because it did exactly what Paul's talking about here. They wandered off into myths and error. And the evidence of those myths is very plain to see. I'll give you some examples. It it, it happens even in the very songs that dead churches sing. For example, in their hymn book, they had a, a, a hymn titled Mother and God. The very words in their hymn said this, Mother and God, to you we sing, Wide is your womb, warm is your wing. So you start singing error, 
eventually you're going to believe it. Their website featured a video about their pastor who was undergoing gender, gender reassignment, and the church was in full support of this. The very literature that they had on their tables and in their church building explicitly denied that Jesus Christ was the only way to God. In fact, here's what their literature said. God works in our world by a mysterious spirit that knows no distinction at the doorway of a Christian chapel, Buddhist, Hindu, or Sikh temple, Muslim mosque, or Jewish synagogue, end quote. That's how it happens, friends. See, it starts with rejecting the truth. And it becomes a church that is dead because they have wandered off into myths. Well, 2,000 years ago, Paul wrote here to Timothy, and he told Timothy exactly how this happens in a church. So here's my summary from this part of the text. How does this happen? Well, I'll put it up here for you. They reject the truth. Churches reject the truth. Individual Christians reject the truth. And then they reject those who are telling the truth. Then they embrace the false teachers. And then ultimately, they're embracing and believing false teaching themselves. They become heretics. Well, fortunately, God has given us some good news in this particular text. He gave Timothy a charge here that would keep his own church from experiencing similar destruction and keep him from wavering during this time of itching ears by the way there's a a cross-reference you might have in your bible to the end of hebrews apparently timothy didn't waver if you read the very last chapter of hebrews it says that timothy was released apparently timothy went to prison he suffered and endured persecution And so we can praise God for that. So we've seen how these these four steps here are in the text of how you can destroy a church. Hopefully none of us want to do that. So then how can we protect a church? How can we protect a church from total destruction? Well, Paul's solution is very simple as far as the amount of words he uses. It's found in verse 2. Paul simply says, preach. Preach. What does preach mean? Preach means to proclaim, to announce. It's, it's one who is a herald. Now, we're not really familiar with that term these days, although we might, you might see it in a newspaper. Some newspapers are called heralds, like the New Zealand Herald. But a long time ago, there wasn't newspapers. And there was actually a person who was a herald. And how would the king communicate to his kingdom? Well, he would send out heralds. And the heralds were messengers of the king. And they were supposed to go out and tell exactly what the king wanted them to say. They weren't supposed to be saying their own words. They had to say exactly what the king wanted them to say. They couldn't interpret it. They couldn't say anything else. But only what the king wanted them to say. Because they were the king's messengers. And that's what a preacher is. A preacher is the messenger of the king of kings and lord of lords. So he is to proclaim and to announce. Preaching is this, my friends. It is a persuasive declaration from the Bible in order to save sinners and equip believers. Therefore, the church that 
remains faithful to God is the church is going to remain faithful to the word of God. The healthy church is the church is the preaching church. And so we want to look at Paul's instruction here and see the kind of preaching that is actually glorifying to God and protects the church from destruction. So the solution, are we clear? Verse 2, the solution is preaching. Now that's not in vogue anymore. That's out of fashion and has been for quite some time. But let's see what Paul says here. First of all, we see how to protect a church from destruction. Number one, preach responsibly. Preach responsibly. If you look at verse 1, Paul was charging Timothy, his protege, his son in the faith, if you will. And, and, and notice what he says. He, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. It would do us all a lot of good to think about this, just as Paul was charging Timothy to maybe think about this and take this on board. It would do us good to occasionally reflect on the fact that one day all Christians are going to face God, and our our works are going to be judged, the Bible says. Unbelievers will too, but even, even believers, our works will be judged. And so this realization should encourage us to do our work carefully and faithfully. Even even those of us who aren't paid to be preachers of the Word of God need to be concerned about this. And, And this, by the way, would also deliver us from the fear of man. Because I recognize every time I preach the Word, my boss is God. And I'm responsible to Him. And so I need to preach responsibly. Because I'm, I'm going to be held accountable to him one day. The problem is too many preachers are man-pleasers. And they think that their boss is the congregation. So we need to recognize this is going to deliver us from the fear of man because God is the final judge. But finally, this realization that God is going to judge one day would, would actually encourage us to keep going in the face of difficulties. It's not easy to be a preacher of the Word. It's not easy to live in this age of of itching ears, is it? A lot of people don't want to hear the truth because they've rejected the truth. So, how do you protect the church from destruction? Number one, you preach responsibly. Number two, preach biblically. Preach biblically. Paul commands the church, and particularly Timothy here, to preach the Word. So it's not enough to just simply preach, because notice he says, preach the word. We need to preach the word. This isn't an option. This is a command. And by the way, what else is there to preach? If you don't preach the Bible, what are you going to hear? What, man's wisdom? Philosophy? Pop psychology? (laughs) What else are you going to get? The preacher's goal is not to entertain people with his style. Preacher's goal is not to amuse people to death with their cleverness, their humor, and their novelty. I've given you some pictures on the screen here. Sadly, this is all too common where preaching is being discarded or downplayed in favor of these newer means. A lot of churches are using drama, and drama is not inherently evil. Please understand that. 
but please notice there's this general trend away from preaching to all these other things. Things like dancing is another one. Here's a dance team you'll see in this picture here. Another thing that's being used today is comedy. So these are just, again, not necessarily evil, but what they've done is they're preaching's going by the wayside because people have rejected the truth, so we've got to find something else to fit the time. Another one is pop psychology. And there's all kinds of other entertainment forms you can see, even in this next slide here, all sorts of things going on in the name of church. So the new methods seem to be more effective, and that's why they do that. In other words, they're drawing bigger crowds. That's how you get a mega church. So whatever pulls in the most people is accepted, and sadly people have turned their brains off, and they just accept this stuff without critically analyzing to see, is that what God wants? Is that actually good? There's a word for this. When you do that, it's called pragmatism. Pragmatism. My friends, pragmatism poses a very serious threat to the church. It's eroding the church from the inside out. It's a gangrene, if you will, that has spread, needs to be amputated. And so, my friends, we should never judge something based on whether it works or not. That's not how you judge something. Success is not measured by the size of a congregation. If that was true, then Jesus was a failure. So how does God measure success? Well, God measures success by this, just faithfulness to the Word of God. Is the church preaching the Word? Preaching, by the way, is only as powerful as the faithfulness to the Bible itself. There's no innate power in in the form of preaching. The power in preaching comes from the source of the preaching. By the way, my, my view is that the most faithful way to preach the word is to preach it expositorily or expositionally and that just means the point of the text is the point of the sermon well to you that might be obvious but to a lot of people it's not the point of the sermon is not in the text and so this ensures that the point of the text then becomes the point of the sermon when you use the text as your guide as the foundation And so this this form of preaching, expositional expositional preaching, constrains the preacher to God's words. It gives you something to follow. You can sit there and you can look. And you can say, is the preacher actually preaching from the text? Or is he inserting his ideas into the text? And so it allows the congregation to ensure that the words are faithfully drawn from God's word. Number three. How can you protect a church from destruction? Well, preach persistently. Preach persistently. Notice what the text says in verse 2. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. That's what the text says. But what does that mean? This is a call for persistence. Persistence in preaching. By the way, this duty is a never-ending task. It's something that's to keep going and going and going and never quit. Preaching is to be done regardless of the climate of opinion. Right now, preaching the Word is certainly out of season. (laughs) Definitely out of season. That phrase you'll see in your Bible there, be ready, literally means to stand beside. 
It has the idea of eagerness. The, the preacher and minister of God's word is to be eager to deliver this truth. It was often used to describe a military guard standing at his post. Someone who is prepared for duty and would give his life to fulfill that duty. It's kind of like the Roman soldier at Pompeii. Someone's drawing on the screen here for you. A faithful preacher is to be like this Roman soldier as Mount Vesuvius was erupting and people were screaming and running for their lives and the city of Pompeii was being destroyed by this volcano. The Roman soldier stood at his post. He did his duty and he died doing his duty. And that's the way preachers of God's word are to be. Preaching comes and goes in the church. There's times when preaching is love, times when Preaching is hated, and we're certainly in this time when preaching is out of season. There are times when we just need to do our duty. Expository preaching comes and goes. So-called experts are telling us that this form of preaching is going to cause the church to collapse. Here's what they say. People don't want to know what the book of Philippians says. They want to know how to solve life's problems. And so this kind of faithful word-based preaching, God says, is to be done in season and out of season. The point is this, my friends. You do it when it's popular, and you do it when it's unpopular. You keep going. Otherwise, you kill the church. Number four, how do you protect the church from destruction? Preach practically. Preach practically. Again, look at verse 2, because it says, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Notice those three words. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. If you look carefully at those and observe them carefully, you'll notice two of them are negative, one is positive. Two negative, one positive. You say, well, what's the point? Well, I don't want to draw too much out of that, but the point is this. You don't want a preacher who always tickles your ears and tells you positive stuff. All valid ministry needs to be balanced between the positive and the negative. It also shows us that preaching is to have a practical dimension here. It's practical. It's not just boring. Preaching, of course, does teach us about God, teaches us His ways, but it does more than that. It also teaches us how to honor God. The Bible teaches us how to live for God, how to serve Him. Yes, knowing about, good is, knowing about God is good, but it's insufficient. Preaching is meant to save souls, transform lives, to spur believers on to live godly and holy lives. Our preaching, notice it says, is to reprove. The idea is there's to confront you. It's to step on your toes. It's supposed to make you feel bad when you're living in sin. It's to confront you. It's to correct your false teachings that you believe, your false doctrine. But notice it's also to rebuke. It's to confront you. It's to correct your sinful behavior of living. But it's also to exhort you. 
It's to train you, to encourage you to do what's right, to, to do what's pleasing to God. Preaching's not just, let me put it this way, it's not just lobbing uh, holy grenades into your foxhole. <laughs> it's encouraging people and caring for them. Hopefully that, that's what good preaching is supposed to accomplish. It steps on your toes, but then it builds you back up. So preach practically. And then number five, how do you protect the church from destruction? You preach patiently. Preach patiently. Notice the Bible says, again in verse 2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience. And so there is to be an element of patience for preaching. And elements of, of patience in preaching. The pastor has to be patient with the form of preaching. Don't the, the pastor or the preacher is not to grow tired of it, never to lose his confidence in the goodness and effectiveness of the Word of God. After all, the Bible says this, the Word is not going to return empty and void. And so the best teachers are ones who are kind and they're forbearing. They know their students. They know their congregation. They're going to endure for a long time with patience and understanding. So the best preaching is coming alongside Christians, leading them, encouraging them to growth in Christ, doing this week after week, year after year. So the best preaching models the patience that God has with us. Because God's patient with us. Because we're very, very slow to grow, aren't we? I am. It's taken me way too long just to get to the point I am now. God has been very patient with me. So preachers need to be patient as well. And then last, how do you protect the church from destruction? Verse 2 also tells us to preach doctrinally. To preach doctrinally. Because the end of verse 2, it got that word teaching. We, get, we often use the word doctrine. Just biblical teaching. Our preaching, in other words, to be full of Christian truth. Biblical truth. And Paul's insisting here that people who turn away from God are not going to endure sound teaching or sound doctrine. Which, by the way, is the very thing that Paul is calling for here. And so the best preaching is consistent with sound doctrine. Teaches sound doctrine. This kind of preaching is not sermonettes for Christianettes. But it, as Paul said in Acts, it's the whole counsel of God. It's not just picking and choosing a hobby horse to ride. Too many preachers do that. Pick their favorite things that they want to talk about. But when you pick the... God says, I want the whole counsel, the whole Bible, all of its truth to be taught. And so looking to a future in which people are not going to tolerate the truth here, Paul ends up telling Timothy to remain faithful to the central calling. God's ministers here are to lead the church with the Word of God, not their ideas, not their so-called wisdom. And so as Paul's charge to Timothy about 2,000 years ago, and today, by the way, the same charge goes out to you. It goes out to me. And as God's people... We live in an age of itching ears. We live in this age where people have embraced false teaching. We have to remain confident. 
We've got to remain committed to the faithful, week-by-week preaching of God's precious word. Well, Paul doesn't end there. He goes on into verse 5 here, and he gives us four commands, four short commands, and he tells us how God's minister is to be. Four commands. They're not optional. Not optional, because they're four commands of how God's minister is to be. Notice verse 5, number 1, tells us to be sober-minded. Be sober-minded. This command is, by the way, it's not just merely a warning against drunkenness. Of course, drunkenness is a sin, but sober-minded has the idea of someone who is self-controlled, steady, he's attentive. It it describes a state of mental alertness, somebody who is in control, complete control of their own faculties. In other words, God's minister is someone who is stable. It's a stable person, just like the athletes that we see in the Olympics. Well, some of them, anyway, are stable. You don't you don't get to gold medal status by being unstable. They're incredibly self disciplined. Those athletes you see in the Olympics, what what they do is they bring all of their passions and their desires and their appetites under control. And when they get up and perform on the the world stage, their nerves are 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 in control to be able to perform at maximum level. What, let me tell you, one of my favorite Olympians. Happens to be an American from the United States. Some of you may have heard of Michael Phelps. 22 gold medals. I don't know how many other silvers and bronzes he has. It's something like 30 medals in total. 22 gold medals is the last I had heard as, as far as yesterday was concerned. How do you get to that level? I mean, that guy, do you realize he's won more gold medals than 174 countries in this world? Most of the countries in the world, he himself owns more gold medals than all of them. It's amazing. But how do you get to that? You don't get that by having a a dad bod. Do you see that one swimmer? If you're paying attention to the Olympics. Dad bods like me, you you don't get, that's not how you win gold medals. He's incredibly disciplined. Every day he goes to the pool, works out five to seven hours a day. He warms up. This is only his warms up. I I, I looked up this. Here's his warm-ups. 60 crunches, 90 push-ups, and 75 squats. That's before he gets into the pool. That's only his warm-up. And then I I, I read that he, he swims about 90 kilometers every week. Most of us don't even drive 90 kilometers a week. He swims it. The guy is incredibly self-disciplined. And that, that's, not, that's only the start. It, it includes diet, rest, and so many other things. You don't win 22 gold medals by going and eating at McDonald's <laughs> and messing around during the week, not doing any exercise. Here's the point, my friends. The church needs more people who are self-controlled. We've had enough erratic, trendy, whimsical preachers whose style just depends on the mood of the crowd. God's ministers need to be sober-minded. But number two, they also need to endure suffering, verse 5 says. Again, it's a command in the Greek language. Endure suffering. So God's ministers can't be people who are just... People pleasers, 
yearning for the crowd's applause. They can't be lovers of earthly comfort because ministry is not a life of leisure. It's not. The church that preaches the word is going to encounter hardship. And Paul, in fact, Paul even told Timothy in this very book, he said, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You live godly? If you're a Christ follower, Paul says you will suffer persecution. So you can endure or you can compromise. That's your two options. And so when adversity strikes, that's the only two choices you have. You can endure or you can compromise. So the faithful minister is one who is going to hold the line no matter what, come what may. But that's not enough. Verse 5 also says, do the work of an evangelist. Do the work of an evangelist. By the way, Paul wasn't suggesting that Timothy's office was an evangelist, because Timothy was an elder, a pastor, God's minister of the Word of God, spent quite a few years at, at Ephesus. But he's telling him that part of his duty as a pastor was to evangelize unbelievers. Evangelize unbelievers. By the way, that's everyone's duty, not just the pastor's duty. And so Timothy needed to reach out beyond his comfort level, if you will. Go beyond his own flock. Boldly proclaim the Bible to unbelievers. It's tempting as soldiers of Jesus Christ to sit in the trenches. But God's saying, get out of the trench and assault the line. Get out there on the front line where it's dangerous and you can get hurt. Do the work of an evangelist. That's what God's ministers do. And then last of all, How is God's minister to be? He is to fulfill His ministry. And God gives a ministry to every minister. Because verse 5, again, it says this, As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. It's not an option. It's a command. Fulfill, by the way, means to accomplish, to fill it up. Do it all. Do it all. So God's faithful minister does not serve God half-heartedly. But he does it with all his might. And so Paul, you know, as, as I've said earlier, this is his last will and testament. Paul's sitting in prison. He, know he's gonna, he, knows, he knows this. He's going to die. He's going to be executed. And so as Paul's coming to the end of his life, I want you to notice what he, he was able to say here in his last will and testament. It's a good example. Look at chapter 4, verse 6. Look what the Apostle Paul said. Chapter 4, verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. It's encouraging. Paul wanted Timothy to reach that same point someday. And God wants all of his ministers to fulfill their ministry. Whatever that ministry is, it's not the same for everyone. Your ministry, your, your path, your road is going to be different from mine. Mine's different from you. 
We all have to walk that path. Stay on the path. Do what God wants us to do. So here's the proposition for today, my friends. Here's the proposition. God wants you to protect His universal church as well as His local church. There's lots of those. Local churches as well. So what are you going to do about it, my friends? What are you going to do? The Bible says we're to be doers of the word and not hearers only. This is a solemn message. What are you, how, are you, how are you going to use this? When you walk out those doors, what are you going to do with this? This week, today. Let me just give you a couple things to think about. Number one, God needs Christians who are totally committed to healthy churches. God wants you to be committed to a healthy church. That means when the doors are open, you're faithful, unless providentially hindered. Right? Unless you're providentially hindered, you're always there. You're, you're committed to that healthy church. Whatever way you can, you, you know, obviously there's things that hinder us, okay? doesn't mean you can always be there. All right? But as much as possible. And then serve God with your spiritual gifts. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The Holy Spirit gives every believer at least one spiritual gift for the edification of that body, their local church. It's to be used in their local church. You need to know what your spiritual gift is that the Holy Spirit has given to you. You have at least one, probably more, and you need to use it for the, for the health of the local church. If you're not, then you're sinning. You have a gift that is being wasted, and the body suffers when you're not using that spiritual gift. Number three, don't listen to the false teachers. Don't listen to them. Paul said, as uh, he, he was about ready to go to Jerusalem, the elders at Ephesus were concerned about Paul. They were very concerned about him. Paul, Paul told them, he, he warned them, in fact, he said, he said, there's going to be wolves who are going to enter into your flock, and they will destroy you from the inside out. These wolves will dress in sheep's clothing, and they will come, and they will destroy you. Because they look like you, they will talk like you, but they're not you. And that's what is, is exactly what's happening in our churches today. People are listening to the false teachers because they've rejected the truth. Remember, that's how it starts. They reject the truth. They reject the truth tellers. Then they start embracing the, the, the false teachers, and then eventually they become heretics and false, and maybe even become false teachers themselves. So don't listen to the false teachers. Don't support the false teachers. Certainly don't send them money. Know who they are. Jesus said you're to be a fruit inspector. That's what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. And then last of all, encourage healthy preaching. Encourage healthy preaching. Encourage your pastor. If he's faithfully preaching the word of God, whoever that is, he needs to be encouraged because we live in an age of itching ears where the truth is under attack. Truth-tellers are under attack. It's not popular today. It's out of season. So it's very discouraging when you keep preaching the truth. Very discouraging. That's why thousands of faithful people are giving up or they, they, they succumb to their lust in some form or another. And so they're out of the ministry. 
It's happening all the time. There's a lot of churches who need faithful pastors. I can't find one. Because people like you are not doing enough to encourage healthy preaching. So let me encourage you. When you're at home, read your Bibles. It starts there. It starts there. You, you need to know what does a false teacher look like? How does he sound? What, what is he teaching? What, what's, what's his heart like? The Bible tells us all that. Have discerning ears so that you don't become one who wants your ears tickled. So encourage healthy preaching. And if you do these things, God will bless you. His faithful churches will be protected. May we pray. May we pray for more healthy churches. I pray that we would not become one of the dead churches. Satan in this world and your flesh is trying to destroy the church, trying to destroy everything that Jesus Christ stands for. We need to be soldiers of Jesus Christ, faithfully serving alongside him. My friend, will you do that? I charge you, as Paul did, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, Let's protect the the universal church as well as all the local churches to the best of the ability, grace of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this precious word. We're thankful for the glorious testimony and the great end to the Apostle Paul's life that we've, we've just read about here. May we be able to say at the end of our life that the time of our departure has come and we are ready. May we be able to say that we have fought the good fight, that we have finished the race that you have set before us, and that we have kept the faith. May we be a people who love your word, love the the preaching of the word, do everything we can to protect the preaching and, and the preachers and the truth tellers. May we not for one moment just sit idly by and allow churches to die open our eyes to see what's going on. Open our hearts that we would see things the way you see them in just a little way to grasp it, to to have the heart that you do. May we care about these things deeply. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.